And we welcome you to the morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am very, very happy that interesting books continue to flow into the radio station or even during this time of COVID-19 and social distancing. And of course, it's a time when a lot of us are perhaps finding a little more time than we otherwise might uh, to explore great books, old favorites or brand new books. And uh, we're going to be talking about a book today that I think explores a very intriguing topic indeed. And the way in which it explores this topic is intriguing as well. The book is titled Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. Behind that title is a phenomenon that uh, is seen all across the country. And it is of, of great interest to our guest, uh, the author of this book, Pavan Dingra. He is a sociologist, and uh, he explores in this book the question of why so many Indian Americans, people who live in this country of Indian descent, find themselves, that is, those who are parents, uh, with, in so many cases, with this fervent wish for their, 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 their children to explore every possible avenue of educational enrichment outside of the standard school day and, and often outside of the standard standard school in professional learning centers. And uh, this plays out in all kinds of different ways. And, and by no means is this limited to this particular uh, facet of our population, but certainly it is a very potent presence uh, in this sector of the population. And this is part of who Pavandingra is himself, which in a sense gives him license, shall we say, to explore this uh, in, in wholehearted fashion. He is, as I said, a sociologist, and he is a professor of American studies at Amherst University, the author of a number of previous books, including Life Behind the Lobby, Indian American Motel Owners, and the American Dream. His work has appeared in all kinds of, of different places, and he's even appeared on National Public Radio, which makes me smile. And I'm very glad that he can be part of the morning show today to talk about his brand new book. Again, it's titled Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough, published by New York University Press. And Pavan Dingra, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So one of the first things uh, I think we should explore is the top of the title, your term hyper-education. And I'm not certain if you've coined it yourself or if that is a term that's been around already, but uh, I think it's a great term, and it describes something, in a sense, very specific and yet also very mm -hmm. broad and complex. Uh, help our listeners understand what you mean by hyper-education. Thank you for asking. And it's a term I did um, come up with, and it speaks to this growing trend, as you already alluded to, of families looking for more education for their kids when there on the surface does not seem to be any clear motivation. So for instance, you have elementary age children, second grade, fourth grade, who are in fine schools, well-resourced re well schools in middle-class or affluent suburbs. And yet the parents want more education for their kids uh, in addition to what they're getting uh, inside the school. And the kids are not falling behind. They don't need help catching up to grade level. The parents just want more enrichment. And you're seeing this, as you already mentioned, among some um, Indian and Asian populations, but increasingly among uh, U.S. born whites and other groups that were um, interviewed uh, for the book. And this takes place across different kinds of venues. So one common venue 
are these, for instance, after-school learning centers that are growing at a quick pace across the country. And for instance, it could be Kumon or Mathnasium or things like this. And you're also seeing a lot of participation in academic competitions for young kids as a way of giving the kids more educational opportunities beyond the school system. So just to be clear, we're not talking about the kind of after-school programs that involve remedial assistance to students who, for one reason or another, are struggling. These are designed for students who are already doing extremely well and in so many cases already receiving really fine educations in their whatever school it is that they're attending. And yet, for some reason, it is thought, we presume by the parents, that Mm -hmm. that is not enough that these students, these their children, need and deserve even more educational experience. Right. So we often, exactly, we often think of after-school hours as times for parents to, you know, find the passion of their kids. So, you know, whether that be woodworking or sports or the arts, and parents increasingly are saying, yeah, that can be fine, but we also need to supplement our very good schools educationally. So reading, writing, and arithmetic is not something that ends at the school hours, nor should we just trust the schools to do it on their own. We have to be doing that along with soccer and ballet or what have you. And sometimes even to the detriment or loss of soccer and ballet. Right. We'll explore that a little bit. That's one of my favorite portions of the book when you explore perhaps some of the reasons why those kind of traditional extracurricular activities in some families for some parents are being very much shunted to the side, in some cases ignored altogether, uh, for reasons that, that we might find a little bit surprising. I want to circle now around the intriguing point of to what extent this is really something we see to a greater extent in the particular population uh, which your book focuses on, uh, namely those of Indian descent and maybe uh, Asian in a, in, a, in a far more reaching way. Uh, so first of all, maybe share with us some statistics that kind of bear up that that initial point. I mean, statistically, is this really something that is predominant in, in, in certain uh, ethnic populations? Right. So that's a good question. Uh, yet we do see that the pursuit of, you know, say tutoring as a broad concept is used by, you know, wide variety of kinds of families. And that's not particular to any one group. But when you're looking at uh, supplemental education, that's not for the remedial sake, but for enrichment sake, uh, the few studies that have been done do show that Asian Americans are more likely to do that than other groups. Now, as a, as a net number, right, it's going to be mostly whites just because that's the largest number. But as a percentage of a population, you see a lot of Asian Americans doing this. And so, and this is not too surprising because, you know, in Asia, uh, for instance, let's take Korea, uh, there are well-known after-school educational centers that are, you know, widespread. In fact, the government gets involved in trying to regulate these. And you see these trends in other countries as well, and outside of Asia too, uh, but it's pronounced there. And, but, you know, I've interviewed immigrants from Eastern Europe uh, who are very invested in the same kind of thing. Uh, in the Boston region, and it's actually national, but it started, started in the Boston region. There is an after-school math center called the Russian School of Math that are, of course, run by Russian immigrants. So you're seeing this across different ethnicities, uh, but we do have some reason to believe that it's pronounced um, percentage-wise uh, in Asian Americans and others. 
Right. Which brings me to one of the questions I was most anxious to uh, explore with you, namely who you are, Mm -hmm. where you come from, your own background, and the extent to which it makes it possible for you to write a book about this Mm -hmm. in a way that might not be possible for me. I mean, (laughs) I I think if uh, white Lutheran Midwesterner Greg Berg had written this book, I suspect that some people might have received it with suspicion and maybe hostility. I mean, who am I to be mm-hmm. uh, making pronouncements about uh, an ethnic group other than my own? Uh, so first of all, let's just start with who you are, your own specific background, and then explore a little bit about how, in a sense, that gives you an opportunity that, might, that others might not feel comfortable with in terms of ex- exploring this topic. Well, I'm sure if you had written this book, it would have been even better. So I'll put that out there. <laughs> but um, but you're right that there are certain um, assumptions that we carry that make it easier for some groups to study them, you know, trans in their own ethnicity than for uh, people who are not part of that group. Um, so when I start asking questions to other Indians about uh, this phenomenon, there's a sense of mutual understanding that allows maybe for an easier conversation, at least at the starting point. I, I will say, I say though that there's, um, for instance, so I talked to a lot of white families who do this as part of the book as well. And I felt those conversations were actually very, you know, sincere and, and thoughtful and uh, honest uh, and surprising. So I think that it's, it's very possible to talk to people outside of your group and explore topics that are sensitive uh, in honest ways. I think rather than saying, for instance, I can get a certain, I, I'm allowed to do this and but I'm not allowed to do that and same thing for you. It's more about how do you go about it? How do you go about approaching a group outside of your own that makes you feel, makes them feel, sorry, that you're being respectful, but you're also, you know, uh, interested in learning. And when you approach it that way, uh, then I think you get a lot of um, insights, especially even for those who are of your own ethnic group, right? They, they may tell you something and they may not tell me. And that could be very informative. So there's, uh, I look at it that way. Can you tell us a little bit about where you come from specifically and your own background mm-hmm. and sure. to what extent uh, the story that you explore here, the phenomenon you explore has been a part of your own background, for instance, a part of your own growing up? Uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Dallas, Fort Worth and a child of immigrants. And, you know, in our house, like a lot of families that I grew up with, you know, uh, Indian or not, you know, education was something that was considered, this is your, you know, this is your job. And so my parents made it very clear that if I had to, you know, stay up late to get a paper done, they would stay up late with me. If I had to, you know, not get some chores done because I had an exam, that's okay. Cause they, you know, we know what's most important. That's kind of the, so less than for instance, this hyper education that I'm talking about now, it was more just a kind of a set of assumptions that I grew up with that I kind of look back on now and can appreciate. Uh, This term, this trend that we're talking about now, which is a growing national trend as you alluded to, is is more recent, right? It's not something that was pronounced, um, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, So, but it is growing. So just as an example, um, Mathnasium is is a national franchise that does with education for all kinds of children, not just those looking for enrichment education. 
Um, and it, it is one of the fastest growing franchises in the country. I don't mean just education franchise. I mean, it's n- any kind of franchise, mm. the fastest growing in the country. And it speaks to this is a, a new normal that wasn't pronounced, you know, my generation, but it's pronounced uh, very much pronounced today. Interesting. So back in your day, uh, given your parents' attitude about education, they very well might have uh, taken advantage of, of these kind of situations and opportunities had they existed, but they, in a sense, did not exist then or certainly not to the extent that they exist now. Right. So your your parents' focus was on the school you attended and what happened during the school day and that you worked hard, as hard as you possibly could, uh, to succeed within the four walls of that of that school. And what you're talking about now with hyper-education involves something that takes that educational experience outside of the school building in, in a right. way that would not have been common at all in your childhood. Correct. Exactly. Well put. Can you, I'd just be curious to know, I think this speaks uh, to the, the, the heart of the book. Um, as your parents uh, raised you in this way with this fierce focus on education and that finishing your test is more important than making your bed or whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> Did they ever explain overtly why it was so important, why it was so important to them, right. and why they thought it should be so important to you? That's a really great question. A lot of you know family, uh, a lot of family practices are go have un, kind of come unspoken. Right? There's just expectations without uh, rationale, and you don't really question things. But to the extent that the, we talked about it explicitly, it was a sense that. You know, education provides opportunities, and especially as an immigrant family, you have to seek out and take advantage of opportunities as they come through education because there's not many other avenues that we're aware of, right? So for, and this is something that was echoed in the families I spoke to, right? So we all know the adage, right? It's not uh, what you know, it's who you know. But if you don't know that many people, then, uh, then it is what you know. That matters and you better know a lot to compensate for whom you do not know and so that's something that a lot of parents i spoke to for the book explained to me and it's something that i saw in my own parents um i recognized as i was talking to these parents for the book that i was like oh yeah it reminds me of you know remnants of conversations i had uh growing up and it wasn't just you know, it was very pronounced among the immigrants who um, were telling me this but even some of the white u.s born families would say, you know, we're not from uh, some of those, a lot of those conversations took place, you know, in the Boston area. And they would say, we're not from the Boston area. We moved here from the Midwest, speaking of the Midwest. And we don't have some of the same connections that people who have been to this area have ha- have had for a while. So we have to do things to, to compensate for that. And that's why I have my kid in a uh, math center, for instance. Hmm. I want to finish this portion of the interview by saying that, um, your dedication for the book is really mm-hmm. lovely, and so uh, nice of you. yeah, I want to I want to read it and just have you a chance, give you a chance to expound on it because I think it says something about the appreciation you have for your own family. Uh, this is the dedication. I dedicate this book to my family, both nuclear and extended. It is with you that I want to continue to live and grow. Thank you. Yeah, that's such a when you're hearing it, you say it. Um, it makes. I'm, I'm glad you read it out. I appreciate that. It feels good. It's true. I mean, I my first book came out a while ago, and I dedicated it to my parents. Um, 
because they're the ones who've created all the opportunities, you know, for me. Uh, and then my next bucket dedicated to my wife. Uh, um, then the, my a book after that, I dedicated to my kids. Mm. So at that point, uh, I realized, you know what, it's, you know, I'm talking about these, you know, my parents and my wife, but it's all connected, right? They're all part of the same general expectation I have of myself and the same sense of, you know, uh, belonging that they've created for me. And it's not just my personal family. It's also my brother and his family, my wife and her family, my mother-in-law, uh, you know, my, all of them have been so supportive and to think about what really matters is, um, that's what, that's what kind of came to me. One last thing I'll say is that, you know, I, I, I've heard people refer to publishing a book as like having a child, like giving a birth. And of course I've never done that. I would never make that same comparison, but I've, I've heard women, you know, make the same comparison. And if you think about, you know, having a book, which comes around every 10 years, let's say, as something akin to having a child, then it is kind of like something you really want to take stop. You want to stop and appreciate what's created this moment for, for, for us, uh, what matters in this moment. And so the dedication stems from that. Hmm. We're speaking with Pavan Dingra about his book, Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not, a, not Enough. Uh, it explores this increasingly common phenomenon that we see across the country in which uh, young people who are receiving, by every uh, measure one can imagine, uh, a very fine, robust education experience in whatever school they are attending, uh, nevertheless are are directed by their parents into uh, all kinds of extracurricular educational activities. So in a sense, in place of or aside uh, what we think of as extracurricular activities of sports or music or uh, art or whatever it might be, um, or Cub Scouts, um, it is extracurricular time focused very much on the heart and soul of education, of mathematics and spelling and other other activities like that and in particular the way in which we see this phenomenon to such a large extent among uh, Indian and Asian uh, populations uh, here in America. Um, Professor Dingra, I want to give you a chance to explain to our listeners the intriguing way in which your book begins uh, the introduction. Uh, you take us uh, into the heart of of an event that plays out again and again and again across the country. And it's a great way to begin the book and to kind of enter this topic. Explain where we are as the introduction to the book begins. So we are in the final, most tense-filled moments of a spelling bee, national spelling bee competition, where a young girl is on stage and she's thinking through and spelling out you know, a word that for most of us we've never heard of, much less can spell or understand. And she gets through it and the crowd erupts with applause. Parent runs on stage. She's given the oversized check that, um, uh, that she's earned. And a spelling coach is standing up there hugging the mother and all this wonderful experience. And yet it's a spelling bee that, that we don't know about, most of us. It's not the Scripps National Spelling Bee that's broadcast on ESPN. And this year, of course, is unfortunately canceled. But... Uh, we're used to, and it's not the one, and she's not going to go out and meet the president of the United States afterwards. This is a South Asian American spelling bee designed for and by uh, South Asians in the U S. And so this is a national championship that took place in New Jersey. And 
She herself uh, was not from New Jersey, but she had come there with her family for this national competition after winning her regional competition. Um, and it's a trend that's growing. Uh, and in case your listeners don't know, right, a lot of the Scripps National Spelling Bee champions over the past 20 years have been of Indian descent. And one of the reasons why is because they have this farm league, if you will, of spelling bee competitions that um, they run. Uh, and um, so that's a way of entering into this trend that, again, is um, quite common across different ethnicities as well. But uh, it can be exciting. It can be scary. Um, but it's growing. Mm. As I read your introduction, uh, <laughs> I got to say that uh, I was really taken aback by the notion that there would exist this spelling bee circuit specifically for South Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, on, on the one hand, I was kind of fascinated by it, you know, kind of intrigued and excited by it, and, and also a little horrified by it. I mean, just kind of, in a sense, the overt racism or the, the, the racial aspect of it uh, mm-hmm. w- w- just kind of took me aback a little bit. I mean, it maybe more so than I even expected. Um, can, can you just speak to that facet of this? Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, the, the South, South Asians in the U.S., after they kind of became uh, successful to some degree in the spelling bee, it's a kind of a standard immigrant story where when you see someone in your population do something, it opens the eyes of others to say, oh, yeah, we can do that. You know, someone who looks like us, who's from our background, our culture is doing well in whatever it is. Um, then it means, oh, that's, that's a space we can enter into also. So it creates more interest in the population. And so once there's interest and there's avenues, people, once there's a demand, you create a supply to meet that demand. And so people created these uh, spelling bees uh, that are very, you know, targeted so that uh, South Asian families can learn about them and, and there's, you know, easy access. Uh, and it's like an additional route beyond the school spelling bee that we all kind of appreciate and kids take part in. Because, again, if there's a real uh, strong interest, you want more opportunities to do it than just the one way that we're all mo- more used to, which is the right. school spelling bee, in which, of course, millions of kids participate in. And we see this in other ways as well. I mean, other ethnicities have done, uh, like I mentioned, you know, this Russian um, math clubs and everything else. If you get known for something, you want to pursue it. Chess clubs could be the same kind of thing you can imagine. Right. So one of the... Uh, Central points of the book, I think it's fair to say, is that when it comes to this uh, ferocious devotion to uh, extracurricular education, hyper-education, as you term it, that at least in many, many cases, we are not talking about parents making these choices for their children out of a love for education itself, uh, or, or, or certainly that is not the whole point. And I think you go so far as to say that in many cases, that's, that's really not the central point at all. That this is actually more about competition and specifically mm-hmm. out-competing others. Uh, and that's probably, of, 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 of everything you, you explore in the book, that might be maybe one of the most troubling things is, is this notion that... that, uh, that that much of this has nothing to do with what it means to be richly educated and, and how right. that in and of itself 
uh, is a tremendous benefit to a human being. Can you talk further about that and also mm-hmm. what it felt like to write words like that? I mean, uh, yeah, right. So no, that's a great insight and I appreciate you bringing it up. And it surprised me. So uh, as an example, when you talk to parents about why they want their children in spelling bees, as a, you know, for instance, I was surprised to learn that for a lot of the parents, they don't really like spelling matters. They want, obviously want their kids to be able to spell, but they didn't value the spelling B per se. Like, oh, this is a real important aspect of education. If you don't know this and you're not educated. No, it was more, my kid expressed interest in this. I've seen other people do well on this. And it's a great way for kids just to, just to learn, just to be more educated. In other words, that was the goal as opposed to spelling bees. Then you unpack, well, why does it matter to be so educated? And as you alluded to, it's not so much that, you know, we want them to be well-versed in the classics or, you know, there's an eye-opening in and of itself. And, it, you know, it's more, this is the best way to compete in order to, cre- in order to access uh, opportunities that are very selective and very limited down the road, most namely like college admissions at, you know, selective universities. This is the best way for our kids to outcompete others. And this is why the book is not about any one ethnic group, right? It's about a new trend or the new normal in education was that education is a very competitive venue. And parents are realizing in order for our kids to quote unquote win, because any competition means there's winners and there's losers, to be on the winning side of that competition, we have to invest early uh, and outside of the normal school system, even when our kids are in fine schools. So it's about trying to create opportunities for kids. And because they think it's a competitive venue that you're trying to create those opportunities in, investing in education at a young age, not only does it not make sense, but to not do so, right, seems weird, right? It's not like it flips on its head, right? And this is true for the um, U.S. born white families that I spoke with, the Indian families that I spoke with, the other groups that I spoke with. That was a real common theme. Hmm. And of course, to to, uh, to think about it in another way or in another arena, it, it would be a little bit like somebody encouraging their their uh, their little boy to go out for baseball or their their mm-hmm. daughter to go out for softball, not because the game of baseball or softball is a wonderful sport and they'll be in better shape and they'll have right. teamwork and camaraderie. It would be as though none of that matters as much as being on the team that wins the wins the title. Right. And, and, and it's like winning the title is, is why you go out for baseball, not for baseball itself. In a right. sense, the, the, this is a corollary to that. Yeah, and the, the teamwork and the, and the camaraderie and the in the fitness, those are all important, right? But that's not, you know, but why are we investing so much into this? It's for uh, the other kinds of outcomes, more tangible outcomes um, in a competitive venue. As you first uh, touch on this uh, in the book, you, you bring up another coin that I think you have coined yourself when you say the, the parents are demonstrating what I, meaning you, call an Asian American style of concerted cultivation. Uh, tell us what's behind that term of mm-hmm. concerted cultivation. I suspect that it's an even broader term than what we're talking about specifically with hypereducation, although yeah. hypereducation is probably the, one of the best examples of it. So, uh, concerted cultivation is, is a term that another um, sociologist came up with. Her name is Annette Leroux. And- it refers to this trend of we're seeing across the country, um, like hypereducation, of families, middle class, typically middle class um, and above in terms of economics, 
to who kind of overschedule their kids and make sure their kids have all uh, are, are brought up in a very intentional way. So I'll schedule them for this and for that. I'll make sure I, you know, I'm always engaging them at the dinner table about, you know, what they did that day and, and making sure that they're always being directed in some, to some degree. And hyper education is a version of this. It's a, and one that I think is in some ways uh, demands more attention because if I, uh, a quick analogy would be going back to your uh, softball and baseball reference, right? If I have my child in after school um, sports, even if it's privatized sports, right? Uh, that, you know, we can talk about that. It's a growing industry and we can complain about it in different ways, but it's not like private, uh, having my child in, you know, AAU baseball or softball in third grade is somehow taking away from the primary goals of the school because schools are not designed at that age to teach safe softball and baseball, right? Little league is, uh, in fact, you can't join the middle school team of softball or baseball unless you've gone through training outside of school. But we're talking about with hyper-education, you know, like you already alluded to, math, spelling, reading. These are the domains of school. This is what school is all about. And even here, parents are saying, no, they're not doing enough. And we want to seek these private outlets, whether it be academic competitions or private learning centers that are, again, quickly growing uh, in order to make sure our kids are getting the, the quote-unquote right kind of education. And so in some ways, right, it is not in any way, it's not an attack on the schools, but it is creating competition for the schools and what they're supposed to be doing. And it's a sign of lacking full trust in schools, even when our schools are doing uh, as well as we, they possibly can. We're all used to hearing concerns around our school systems, but typically that's when schools are seen as not preparing kids adequately, underfunded, uh, lacking proper infrastructure, lacking textbooks, et cetera, et cetera. Here we have situations where our schools are, have none of those problems. And in fact, they're blue ribbon schools. And even then parents, again, white parents, Asian parents, you name it, are saying, no, they're not, they're not, they're not teaching my kid well enough. That's it's not enough. enough. Yes. That's not enough. Um, you're reminding me of, of a really interesting comparison that you draw a little later in the book uh, in which some of these after school uh, learning centers uh, are engaging in what what we might think of as shadow education. I think mm -hmm. you, 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 you talk about it in some term such, such as that, uh, something that is in a sense closely in close parallel with the school's curriculum. And it's designed to uh, fold into that in mm -hmm. maybe right. fairly seamless fashion versus other learning centers that are in a sense completely independent and one right. might assume completely oblivious to uh, the <clears throat> curriculum and or the wishes and approaches of, of the school itself. Uh, tell us a little more about that distinction and to what extent that distinction really matters as we that's the, talk about this. That's a great question and a great nuance to bring out. So shadow education refers to tutoring uh, options that, as you just alluded to, shadow, right, the curriculum of the schools. So if a child is having trouble with, you know, third grade math, tutoring that's shadow education helps the child kind of figure out what's going on in the classroom and then excel in the classroom. And that's been around for, of course, many years. This new trend is for, is for tutoring or educational opportunities that are, do not shout at the school and create, and instead create their entirely own curriculum, their own assessments, their own teaching, their own pedagogy, as if the school curriculum is just, well, that's one version of math and that's fine, but we have a different version of math we want you to learn. And that has, that you know, parents are paying for, right? 
And so in a sense, their parents are saying this other version of math or whatever else it might be, that is so important to us that the school math becomes just one variety, right? It's no longer the math, you know, student, we should hold up as the most important kind of education you can get. So it kind of, again, diverse attention outside of the schools. Hmm. And a little later, we're going to talk about the most serious harms that are tied up in this as, as far as you're concerned. Um, but I want to mention what was probably a fairly minor harm on the whole, in the whole scheme of things, that, but I find really fascinating. You apparently talked to uh, more than one teacher in a standard school who had some kind of disconcerting things to say about some of the students they worked with who were part of these mm -hmm. fancy uh, professional learning centers in terms of the way those students would conduct themselves in a standard classroom, the way that they right. would function, the quality of the work that they would do in that classroom. Explain to our listeners what I'm talking about. So uh, some teachers worried that, ironically, you could actually end up learning less if you were part of these after-school learning centers than if you were just in the schools because students who are in the after-school after -school learning centers, they may get faster at certain math equations or certain kinds of approaches, but they don't necessarily understand the concepts behind what they're doing, which is what the public school is trying to provide, right? Really get the concepts down, the foundations that you can then build from. But these students feel that they already know this information that the teacher at the public school is teaching them because they've learned it outside. And so they don't necessarily engage adequately with what the teacher is giving them. They have a kind of a, you know, I know, already know this attitude. I'm better than other people attitude. And so they end up taking in less instruction than they otherwise could or indefinitely should. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there are negative consequences, which I'm happy to allude to. I will say that, you know, there are um, a lot of positive consequences to this as well. That's some of the troubling things, right? There are actual benefits for this that make the parents want to keep coming back to it, even as there's also negative consequences that uh, to, be, to be very mindful of. Right, right. And of course, as you uh, are discussing all of this, you, you do raise the point that that racial assumptions or broad generalizations we make about uh, racial groups of one kind or another um, can really be a problem in all kinds of different directions, including the blithe assumptions that a teacher makes about mm -hmm. um, a, a black kid from the inner city or, or uh, in, in, in a young Indian woman who's parents are both doctors. I mean, right. a, a teacher uh, is, it's understandable how a teacher may make some, some assumptions uh, mm -hmm. about this particular student's potential, how they're going to flourish and so on. And, right. and as we're having this conversation, it's probably important to circle back to that particular danger. Yeah. And teachers are in a tough position, right? Because they're having to uh, teach a set of students who have vastly different backgrounds, not just I, mean, I don't mean just ethnic backgrounds, but backgrounds in the material. And they have to all have them together in the same room and keep them on some kind of set uh, schedule. And so it becomes really challenging for students, no question. For Sorry, for teachers, no question. And uh, one thing that became clear in researching and talking with teachers and hearing their perspective is that they're concerned about student stress and student um, well-being, but they don't always know um, why students are doing what they're doing. So that a lot of, so one of the stereotypes, right, is that these students are, these kids are pushed into these things by parents who are kind of overdriven and, and, you know, authoritarian. And that's oftentimes not the case, right? A lot of these students really enjoy being part of these extra, extra, extracurricular academics. 
such as you know spelling bees or math competitions, and even find pl some pleasure in these math centers, Kumon and other things that they go to. And these centers really try hard to make the learning you know fun, quote unquote. Uh, but teachers often assume that these students are kind of forced into them and are victims, right? And that's not necessarily uh, the case. Right. As you talk about uh, the the generalizations we take tend to make about Asian Americans and their style of parenting. Uh, you tell us that scholars uh, like to differentiate between author uh, authoritarian and mm. authoritative parenting styles. Right. Could we just take a second to yeah. talk about that distinction? I've, that's actually something I've, I've, I'm not acquainted with at all. That's another great nuance you're, you're bringing out, which is the author author authoritarian parenting style is something we could caricature as, for instance, tiger parenting, which is that parents push their kids into uh, certain expectations and um, practices regardless of the child's interest. And so the parent becomes a very top-down relationship to the child that doesn't account for kids' you know, emotional state, their interests. And the only way that like, an affection is shown through um, being commending outcomes like good grades. Uh, that's a, that's a kind of classic authoritarian parenting style, and it's unhealthy for kids and actually does not lead to better learning outcomes if that's your goal. Authoritative parenting means that parents, you know, are, are you know, the ones who are quote unquote in charge, but they're very attentive to what the children's interests are. They listen to them and they're, and they're more of a dialogue about how to get towards the goals the parents want, as opposed to it being a monologue and, and simply dictating to children. And so authoritative parenting um, actually has been shown to have some of the best outcomes, but not just in terms, again, uh, education, but also social emotional, because a child feels listened to, but also doesn't have, um, a, doesn't lack direction, let's say, and knows that there are, there is someone who's in charge uh, who needs to be respected. And when that's done well, which is not easy, by the way, we all struggle with that as parents, how much to tell our kids to do something, how much to let them guide us, and that obviously changes as the kids age and such and such. But when it's done well, it leads to the better outcomes. And what um, and most Asian American parents, like most white parents, um, actually practice more of an authoritative as opposed to authoritarian style. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, Pavan Dingra about his book, Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. Uh, he coined the term hyper-education and refers to households in which children who are attending outstanding schools and, and, and schools that are delivering a very high-quality education nevertheless are directed by their parents uh, into further educational uh, activities, uh, sometimes hour upon hour, uh, outside of the normal school day. Uh, and uh, the book explores some of the reasons for that and, and why we're seeing that uh, more and more. Uh, I wish we had more time for this. Uh, I, uh, one of the terms that you also raise in terms of trying to help us understand what's going behind this mindset is the concept of neoliberalism. And you tell us neoliberalism alters the meaning of childhood and parenting. So what is this notion of neoliberalism and, and why is it a key component in, mm -hmm. in a sense, fueling this concern and interest among right. so many parents? Uh, thank you for that question. So neoliberalism refers to, I mean, this is generally speaking, uh, the belief that 
we are in charge of our our own outcomes. And so this, we can't rely, for instance, on the government or other kind of state uh, options to provide things that we, for us, we should provide things for ourselves. So for instance, you, you if you, you can't provide, you shouldn't rely on the government for healthcare, you should get a job that provides you healthcare. Uh, and similarly, if you think about it in terms of education, you shouldn't rely just on the government and the public schools to provide your education. You yourself have to be in charge as a parent to make sure your kids are as educated as uh, they can be. And so if that's the mindset that we have, that mindset is, you know, impacts us in various ways, not just in terms of our conversation here, then it's incumbent upon parents to seek out options for their kids beyond the school. Otherwise, not only are the kids not getting what they you know, can get, but the parents are failing as parents. We're no longer doing our job properly if that's the mindset that we are in charge of our own outcomes and relying on uh, the state, for instance, um, to provide, to, to serve the public well uh, is, it becomes a mistaken set of assumptions. And that's why you're seeing, for instance, the growth of private enterprises, the marketplace and education where it wasn't always before because parents are saying, no, we're not going to rely just on um, people to take care of things for us. If we don't, and if we don't take it in our own hands, we're letting our kids down. And so that mentality fuels this and it um, creates, uh, like I mentioned before, these franchises to be, you know, quickly growing and serving a real need um, and want um, in, in communities. And, and by the way, your book explores uh, kind of the nature of many of these learning centers and the fact that they are built uh, with this kind of franchise model and what all that that means. Um, but I think we need to talk about uh, some of what your book explores in terms of uh, the very real and potential harms mm -hmm. that are part of this. I mean, because somebody might make, uh, again, a very blithe, casual assumption that uh, education is great and what's wrong with more education and pouring even more into the young minds of, of, of especially gifted children who seem to like school and like mm -hmm. learning and so on. But uh, there is the real possibility of, of children actually being harmed in ways that, uh, that, that the typical mm -hmm. loving parent would, would never imagine or, 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 or ever want to happen. Right. Um, what, would you, what would you point to as the most serious points of concern here? Um, there are significant social and emotional problems that can arise when children are forced into hyper-education against their will, um, especially for a, a you know, period of time. And the children feel under intense pressure to perform and get good grades as, for instance, their only way of, of pleasing uh, a parent or a teacher. And that becomes very damaging to them. And not only to their you know, well-being and the stress level, but even to their love of learning. Like learning becomes no longer something of inherent interest. It becomes like a chore you have to get through. And the uh, and teachers are seeing this, right? Teachers are very concerned about uh, anxiety uh, and stress and pressure on children. And we normally see that uh, at the high school and college level, but we're increasingly seeing it at the middle school and elementary school level. You know, kids feel burned out. Kids feel, kids feel, feel stressed about uh, the SAT, even though they're only in second or third grade, right? And so the more that we buy into the mindset that 
education has to be pressured on kids and higher standards need to be always be met and exceeded, whether through the school or these out of school spaces, then the more we're creating uh, this notion of, of an education arms race that children feel caught up in and, uh, and worried by. And one thing to add is it doesn't just impact the kids who are doing it, right? It's not like the stress and anxiety is limited to just those who are undergoing hypereducation. It's impacting those who sit next to them in school, who no longer feel that they're good enough in a subject because the kid next, because the child who's doing the after school education is excelling over them. So it has a domino effect that um, we need to be very mindful of. Hmm. So fascinating to think about uh, this complex story and the fact that on the other hand, there are all kinds of children uh, in this country who are in schools that are struggling and are probably not being adequately served. It's just so interesting to think about these two extremes existing within uh, the boundaries of the same nation. And uh, uh, it's just fascinating to think about. I I wanted to mention that your book also has a really interesting section in which you explore why many of these families are making these specific choices for educational extracurricular uh, Mm -hmm. uh, activities versus the more standard uh, sports or music or art and why those are not viewed as uh, as important or as potentially uh, beneficial or valuable to the to the to the child in question. In the last uh, couple of minutes that we have, who did you write this book for primarily? Mm. I mean, uh, right. <laughs> one could assume you might have written this hoping that that some of the parents who are engaged in this would maybe <laughs> stop and 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 reflect on what they're doing, the choices they're making. Uh, I'm not sure if that was your intention whatsoever, or if that's even the primary. Uh, intention of this book. Who is this book mostly written for? Would you say? I, I, I appreciate that question. Um, the parents who are doing this, you know, they already know a lot about what's going on. Um, and I hope if when they read it, they, it gives them a chance to reflect on, is this the way I want to be doing things? And if the answer is yes, that's great. Right. And, but if the answer is not, then it's a chance to ask ourselves some tough questions. And that's, again, that's true for any kind of parenting, right? We all should be questioning what we do as parents. Um, but the other main target audience, like the main target audience, are for parents who aren't doing this, but are realizing, hey, you know, I see this thing kind of going on. I realize that, you know, there are families that are, um, and there are trends that are in our education system that I'm kind of hearing about or curious about. And why is this trend growing? What does it mean for our education system if more and more families pursue education outside of school? Uh, for principals and teachers and, and education leaders, why do families in our system, why do some of them uh, choose to do this? Like what really motivates them? Uh, what can we say about the future of education as this becomes the new normal? And again, it's not isolated to any one geography or one population. And um, it's becoming the new trend. So what are the implications for our school system uh, in general as this grows? Even if you don't have kids in the system, uh, but you care about education, this is something that uh, is going to be impactful down the road. Hmm. The book, again, is Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough, published by New York University Press and the author, Pavan Dingra. Uh, Pavan Dingra, I have really enjoyed, first of all, exploring your book 
and uh, having this conversation with you about it. I thank you so much for writing such a deeply thought-provoking book, and, uh, and I uh, wish you well, and thank you again for being part of The Morning Show. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a joy.